Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Philippa Lacey Brule and I want to extend a warm welcome to you. If you are new here, hi, thank you for joining. And if you are returning, thank you so much for your support. In this podcast, we explore all sorts of things that have gone on in British history. We look at people, we look at events, we look at outcomes and perhaps look at them from a different perspective than usual. If you would like to support me in this free podcast, this podcast will always remain free, but if you would like to support me, then you can head over to my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash British history. And you can choose the tier there that would suit you best, starting from any £3 a month just for your kind support. Now, without further ado, let's get into today's episode. It was certainly an intense relationship, it was a passionate relationship, but I don't think it was a sexual relationship. Today I have travelled to Blenheim Palace near Woodstock in Oxfordshire to meet the social historian here at the palace, Antonia Keeney. Antonia's research has helped uncover and tell the stories of Blenheim Palace and the people connected to it. Her work covers a period of over 300 years from before the first stone was laid for a brand new palace on the ancient Royal Park of Woodstock through its long and sometimes fraught construction right through to the palace in the World Wars and since. But today we will be looking at one person in particular who is key in the history of Blenheim Palace, Sarah Churchill, the first Duchess of Marlborough. Before we leave you today, Antonia is going to give us some must-sees, some highlights at the palace, and I will give you more information about how you can arrange a visit to Blenheim Palace. Can we start with who is Sarah Churchill and how she how she linked to the royal family? Um, so she she was Sarah Jennings, and um, her mother was actually at court. And so her older sister Frances was a maid of honour and eventually Sarah became a maid of honour as well. And, um, you know, this is in the late 1600s and it was a time when the expression maid of honour was really a misnomer because the maids were almost kind of, um, they were there to supply and to satisfy the appetites of the, the male members of court. Um, and Sarah was something of an exception, actually, because she did keep her honour um, until she met the right man. And therein lies, you know, a, a whole huge story, to be quite honest. So, so she's already at court, her, but she becomes, is she maid of honour to Anne? No, straight she, away? she Anne was actually a childhood playmate. Um, so Sarah was five years older than Princess Anne, as she was at the time, later Queen Anne. And um, the two of them formed quite an unlikely friendship um, at that stage. And in fact, Anne saw in Sarah, you know, this older girl, and you can imagine little girls are always fascinated by big girls. Um, and also Sarah was very bright and very lively and very beautiful. And you could argue all the things that Anne wasn't. You know, Anne had suffered with poorly eyes and, you know, she she she... She was a, a, a lot more introvert than Anne, uh, sorry, than Sarah was. And so they became friends um, and 
you know, really, Sarah's fortunes turned upon this friendship, um, and it was it was to become very, very important to her. Um, although she did mess it up slightly. Yeah, we'll get on to that. <laughs> yeah. So their pers personality-wise, they were quite different. Yes, so what was Sarah were. like then? Oh, gosh. Um, Sarah was very ambitious, and she was very level-headed, and she, she was quite unusual for her time. Um, and in fact, she, did, as I say, she, she did remain a maid of honour. And, and what happened... Uh, I'm just going to backtrack a little, if I may, mm. because John Churchill is very important to this story as well. I know that um, it's interesting to look at the relationship between the Queen and Sarah, but um, John Churchill was 10 years older than Sarah. He was also at court, and Sarah thought him as handsome as an angel. Oh. Um, Sarah caught John's eye, and he thought that, you know, he would be able to strike up a relationship with her and things would, would continue apace. But Sarah, you know, really held on to her honour and she told John that his happiness lay in his own hands, as it were. So, in other words, if he married her, then fine. If he wasn't going to marry her, then he could just forget it, really. So, um, what you have then is a situation where John did marry Sarah they married in secret to start with, um, and we're not sure why, although it could well have been that Maids of Honour had to be single, um, so Sarah wasn't ready to relinquish that role just yet. But the important thing was the relationship between Sarah and Anne, and Anne became queen, and she did everything she could to please Sarah. So, um, you know, there, there was nothing that she wouldn't have given her. So she, she made her an allowance, and she made her mistress of the stole, she made her the keeper of the privy purse. Um, and the story goes that one day they were riding through Windsor Great Park, and Sarah commented that she liked the look of the lodge. And so Queen Anne made her the, the ranger of Windsor Great Park, which was a, a post held by the Duke of Edinburgh during his life. You know, so... It, it, she couldn't do enough for Sarah. And is this rooted back to when they were children and she's the, the bigger girl? And she, because this is such a, a need in her to please Sarah. And Sarah doesn't seem ever satisfied. No, it's, it's interesting actually because, um, you know, Sarah was all, she's many things. And one of the things that she did uh, was to write and she published various books. Um, and one of them was called Her Conduct. Um, and she, she remembers that as in their younger um, years, the Queen and herself were shut up for hours, day upon day upon day. Um, and she says that every moment of absence, Anne, the Queen, counted as being a kind of lifeless, tedious state. Um, but Sarah thought it to be very, very opposite to that. And, you know, she, she was fed up of being cooped up in a room with, with the Queen, or as she later became. Um, and I think much has been made about their relationship. And I, I think many people will have seen the film The Favourite, mm. uh, which is a fantastic film. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great romp through their relationship, as it were. Um, but I would question some of the, some of the, the points that are made. Um, and it was certainly an intense relationship. It was a passionate relationship. But I don't think it was a sexual relationship. Mm. Um, you know, I have... I have no doubt, really, in my mind that it wasn't. 
it's probably worth context here. We've spoke about Sarah and John, so maybe we should mention here about Anne and George, because yeah. that seems like a really loving marriage as well. And, you know, one of the things I, that I feel, Anne, you know, poor woman, had 17 pregnancies and none of these children survived beyond the oldest one was the Duke of Gloucester who died just after his 11th birthday. Mm. And, you know, it was tragic. In some years she lost two children. You know, she may have lost a, an infant and a toddler. Um, so it was, a, it was a terrible time. And um, I think her relationship with her husband was close. And you just think, when would she have had time to have an affair with Sarah? Mm. Um, and Sarah, again, you know, the very few of her letters to John Churchill survive. But in one of them, she writes, um, so John Churchill was away on campaign an awful lot. He, you know, he, he led the English forces in the wars of Spanish succession. And Sarah writes to him, wherever you are, whilst I have life, my soul shall follow you, my ever dear Lord Marlborough. And wherever I am, I should only kill the time, wish for night that I may sleep, and hope the next day to hear from you. Now, those aren't the words of someone who, you know, really didn't care about her husband. Mm. Um, and there's, I, there's a, again, I, I can't remember the source, but I remember reading somewhere that, you know, Marlborough, when he got back from campaign, was in such a hurry to see Sarah that he would pleasure her with his boots on. <laughs> <laughs> They did miss each other then. <laughs> and, you know, uh, John Churchill died in 1722 and Sarah died in 1744. So she was a widow for a long time. Mm. And by that time, she owned, you know, 20 to 30 properties throughout the country. She was an incredibly wealthy woman and she received a couple of um, proposals of marriage. And one of them was from the Duke of Somerset, who, who was a friend. In fact, she went as far as to turn him down and find another wife for him. Um, so, and, and she didn't have many friends at that stage in her life. But in her reply to him, she said, if I were young and handsome as I was, instead of old and faded as I now am, and you could lay the empire of the world at my feet, you should never share the heart and head that once belonged to John, Duke of Marlborough. Yeah, so she, she missed him. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're not telling me that, that those are the words of someone who, mm. who didn't have that deep love. You just mentioned there about how much property and wealth she'd accumulated by the time, well, by the time she was an elder woman. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't by chance, was it? She was quite savvy. She knew what she, she was doing. She was way ahead of the time. And, you know, she, she had a, a huge grip on, on finances. Um, you know, we... We've looked at her account books, and she, you know, she she accounts for everything. She knows everything, and even you know, towards the end of her life, she had an amazing memory, and she could she made a, a list, an inventory of all the things that she had um, here at Blenheim. So you know, the number of mattresses, the number of pillows, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and she did it all from memory. You know, wow. she, she's an incredible woman. She really was quite accomplished wasn't she and like you say ahead of her time because I think she she knew to invest in property didn't she that was yeah, one of the things did. she did she did and, and one of the other things that she did which again I find fascinating I mean I'm a huge fan of Pride and Prejudice from my favorite books and, and which was you know 
later uh, at later period. But you know, the, the overarching theme in that is poor Mrs. Bennett with five daughters um, and having to find husbands for them. Now, Sarah was no different. She had four daughters. Um, she, she also had two sons, um, but sadly, both the boys predeceased their parents, so they were left with these four girls. And Sarah knew how important it was to make good marriages for them. Yeah. And it, it was a business contract yeah. as far as that went. And, and if you happened to get on with them, their husband, your husband as well, that was a piece of good fortune. And again, that's in a, a sharp contrast to John and Sarah's marriage because it didn't benefit either of them financially. But obviously it benefited John greatly because of Sarah's connection with Anne. Um, I mean, her, she, she, as I said, she had four daughters. One of them um, married the Duke of Montague. Um, another one married um, the Spencer. Sorry, I've forgotten his name now. It's terrible. John Spencer, I think it was. So Spencer's at Althorpe. You know, that was Anne. So um, the estates continued to grow through her children as well, in a way. Mm. Um, one of her daughters, Anne, uh, the one that married into the Spencer family at Althorpe, she had two daughters. One of them was called Diana, so the first lady, Diana Spencer. And because Anne died at a very young age, she died in 1716, um, Sarah took Lady Di under her wing and proceeded to negotiate a marriage contract with the Prince of Wales. Um, so, which didn't happen in the end because Walpole decided he didn't want Sarah to have such a powerful position again. Um, but it's, you know, it's interesting when you start to see what happened to the rest of the family as well. And it, and it was all about power and property and, you know, titles, etc. Mm-hmm. Now, um, obviously we sat here in Blenheim Palace. Um, it, it's it's so grand. It is like a royal palace. Some would say it's better than a royal palace. palace. <laughs> Isn't it the only non-royal, non-ecclesiastical place in the country to have the title it's palace as well? Is. So how did it get the name palace? How did it get palace attached to it? Again, this is one of the things that there's much much speculation about. And, you know, again, if you look at various... Um, drawings and paintings of Blenheim you know, from, from day one almost. Sometimes it's referred to as Blenheim House, sometimes as Blenheim Castle, um, but then it became Blenheim Palace. But I suppose one of the arguments is that John Churchill had many, many titles, and one of them was Prince of Mindelheim. So uh, this was a place he, he ruled in inverted commas for, I think, nine years. And so if you're a prince, you live in a palace. Right. So, so what could be grander? But I, I made the comment earlier, somewhat flippantly, that this is the best palace. <laughs> and in fact, um, one of John's descendants, the fourth Duke of Marlborough, who was Duke here from 1758 until 1817, he's a very good friend of George III. And George III visited Blenheim, and his comment was, we have nothing to equal this. And then he set about making Buckingham House, as it was, into his primary residence and into Buckingham Palace that we know today. Thanks, maybe Blenheim was his uh, 
His inspiration. Absolutely. I think it was. <laughs> his predecessor would have just, or one of his predecessors would have just taken it. So I suppose yes, that's... Yeah, a... probably. But then I suppose, you're, you know, that brings an interesting point, really. Um, would have taken it back mm. because, in fact, um, the land uh, that you can see surrounding us here, 2,000 acres, um, and also £240,000 to build the palace was a gift from Queen Anne to John Churchill in recognition of his military prowess, you know, particularly the Battle of Blenheim, which was in 1704, um, and that's how the palace got its name. So let's let's talk about that, because um, many of the people who listen to my podcast are Tudor fans and will um, lament the fact that Woodstock, which they'll know from the stories of Elizabeth I especially, doesn't exist. How does Woodstock, for a start, fit into the story of Blenheim? So Woodstock Manor. Um, okay, so when um, when this was gifted to them, the there was a rambling manor house that had, had kind of been enlarged over the centuries, to be quite honest, because um, the, this land was part of an ancient forest, Witchwood Forest, and it was a hunting ground for Henry I, Henry II, etc. And, you know, Henry VIII visited, as you mentioned, Princess Elizabeth was actually imprisoned in the gatehouse in Woodstock Manor, and she did come back as queen um, and also visited nearby Ditchley Park. So um, it was here for centuries. And then, and then Sarah came. And uh, Blenheim Palace was designed by John Vandra. And he had the notion that this, this dilapidated manor house would make a, a romantic folly. Uh, but Sarah was having none of it. But he thought he knew best. So he decided, well, you know, actually, if I, if I smarten this up a little bit, I could stay here and oversee the building work. But Sarah got wind of this. And so unbeknownst to Vambra, she turned up one day and asked the housekeeper to be shown around. And the housekeeper had no idea who it was. And the housekeeper carried on pointing out all these improvements and renovations, etc. And Sarah was absolutely livid and then ordered that the manor house be raised to the ground, which it was. Wow. Yeah. But I have to say that some of the stone was used to build the foundations for the Grand Bridge. So... There are bits of it still here, but not quite as you'd expect, unfortunately. So there's no, nothing left of not what... Is. There's a pillar to mark where it stood, and it's kind of just across the lake from where the palace stands today. What a shame. I know. Oh, wow. So let's give people an idea of the scale of Blenheim. Do you know what sort of square footage are we talking do you know it well, just seems just tricky I, th I think the kind of the footprint of the palace is about five acres right uh, so the building itself um you know we have acres and acres of lead roof um it's it's immense so it we're talking terrible. sort of whitehall palace almost scale i think that was covered about six acres yeah so you know, this is this is up there with one of the biggest presents anyone could ever have given it. Oh, definitely, definitely. And it's it's interesting because we're part of Woodstock Town. I mean, Woodstock's a, a wonderful market town, but you kind of you walk through the town and then you come to what we call Woodstock Gate, which is a kind of triumphal arch. And there you come through, 
and there's this amazing landscape, you know, capability brown landscape, this vast lake um, that again covers acres and acres and acres, and this amazing palace, and it's just on the end of this lovely little town. Mm. You know, you'd never expect it to be there. Let's go back to the construction of Blenheim. When did so the, so the Battle of Blenheim was 1704. Then Anne pretty quickly comes up with this. Yeah, um, they, you know, again, I think she discussed it in great detail with Sarah and decided against a park bench or a, you know, a nice little square somewhere. Um, and she decided that she would reward John Churchill with just over 2,000 acres of land and also £240,000 to start building the palace. And the building started on the 18th of June, 1705. And that's when oh. the foundation stone was laid. Oh, gosh. That was so pretty quickly. Very quickly. Um, Sarah wanted Christopher Wren to design it mm. because she liked his style. John Churchill, for once, I think, you know, decided that he was... He wanted a monument, really. And that's what he's got with... Blenheim, and he decided he wanted John Vanbrugh, who was a, a fellow member of the Kit Kat Club. Um, and they, Vanbrugh created a model of the palace, and he showed it to the Queen at Kensington Palace. It, unfortunately, it's it's been lost over the years. And set, Anne never visited Blenheim. She died in 1714, and and you know, things were still half, you know, walls were half built. Etc. So she never saw it completed, and by the time she died, she and the church was had fallen out anyway. So, how long did planning take to complete? I would say twenty-eight years, and it's it's not quite finished today. <laughs> the building started in seventeen oh five. There were periods of inactivity. Uh, there were periods of dispute. And eventually the chapel was consecrated in 1733. And the reason I say it's unfinished is because, again, if you look at Vanbrugh's plans, the whole, the whole thing is symmetrical. So we're actually sitting in a room in the kitchen courtyard. And then you move on through kitchen court into the great court. And then you move into a third courtyard, which should be identical to the one we're sitting in. And that was never finished. Right. And it never will be no. No, no. No, it's part of its history, the fact yeah. that it didn't get finished, I yeah. suppose. So Anne did Anne gift the two hundred and forty thousand She did, and, and again because I don't think she ever specified how much the treasury would give. Mm. Um there, there were disputes and eventually the churches had to um, make up the balance as it were, and I've I've read that they they paid about £60,000 to complete it. But again, you know, when you think about it, all this was built by hand. They used all the leading craftsmen of their, their day. Um, and it, it is just absolutely superb. It is superb. So did so? I presume John Churchill must have died before it was completed, if he was 1722. Um, and the way Van worked was he, he built from east to west. Ah. And so, in fact, the family did, or the Duke did have two sons in the east wing of the palace before he died, um, but he never saw it finished. And in fact, it, it really was a labour of love for Sarah to complete it, because she, she detested Blenheim. Did she? Absolutely. It was, she, she just liked everything very plain, and in fact, she commissioned Christopher Wren to build Marlborough House for her in London, which now belongs to the Crown. 
Um, but that was far more her style. So she got her own way with that. She did. But she, but she continued to... Because she well, she was quite hands on, wasn't she, with the management of the build of the building yeah, she work? Was actually, because she, I mean, she she, she was described uh, by Alexander Pope as a good hater, and in fact, she she fell out with all sorts of people, and, and John uh, John Vanbrugh was was one of them. And when the Duke was no no longer able to kind of def, defend or shield Vanbrugh from Sarah's anger, um, he. He fired himself. Was it what happened? He said, "You know, madam, you have you have my end," um, and said that he would never you know, set foot in the place again unless John Churchill was there to defend him. And, and they'd also fallen out because um, Sarah had employed Bamber's services as a matchmaker for her daughter Elizabeth, and it didn't quite go according to plan. So there were all sorts of things, irritants, um, and between Sarah and Vanbrugh. And I suppose this is, we're talking about quite a long relationship here as well, with the amount of time it took to... Very much so. And and then the whole business about Woodstock Manor, he he tried to to have that sneakily restored and she wasn't having any of that. Yes, we get these insights into Sarah's personality, don't we, with these actions that are really quite decisive once someone tries to disagree with her. you're right, it wasn't just people outside the family, it was very much within her family as well. Um, so she had, so four daughters, she had um, Henrietta was her eldest, then Anne, Elizabeth and Mary. Now Anne and Elizabeth uh, predeceased Sarah and as long as you, you kind of are in that situation, um, you're fine. And again, to quote Alexander Pope, he said, offend her and she'll hate you while you live, but die and she'll adore you. Now, Elizabeth and Anne died, but she was left with Mary and Henrietta. And Henrietta in particular, she had a really, really rocky relationship with. Now, when John Churchill died in 1722, there was no male heir. And because of the great friendship that they had had with Anne, um, many years before that, an Act of Parliament had been passed, which enables this title to go to and through the female line, which is you know, pretty unique. Mm. Um, and if you think that it was only relatively recently that the law was changed in favour of, of female descendants, um, you know, Prince William, for example. Um, you know, so all that was, was very unique as far as the marbles went. So Henrietta became the second Duchess in her own right in 1722. Now, the thing that really riled Sarah was that Henrietta had made a good marriage, as it happens to the son of one of their very good friends, who was Sidney Godolphin. She married, Henrietta married his son. Um, But it wasn't a successful marriage. She... Henrietta gave birth to her son and she notified her husband by saying to a servant, go tell the fool I've got him an heir. So, you know, that gives, that gives you some, some idea. She then went on and had um, a very open affair with William Congreve, who was a playwright. And having an affair wasn't unusual, but it was the way you conducted it. Mm-hmm. And she conducted it very openly. So, and again, this just infuriated Sarah. 
Um, and in fact, Henrietta and Mary were present at the Duke's deathbed um, in 1722 at Cumberland Lodge, Windsor Lodge. Um, and they were still arguing as John lay dying, really. <laughs> he knew he was leaving it as he'd, as he'd lived. Absolutely, <laughs> it was all pretty grim. And, and Sarah, as we, you know, we've mentioned she was many things. One of the things that she, she was also was an author. And she, she wrote this amazing book, um, which is known as the Green Book. But its full title is actually an account of the cruel usage of my children. And in it, she wrote all her grievances against her children, so her daughters, her sons-in-law, her grandchildren, etc. And she only had a few copies of this printed so that she could distribute it to her close friends for their delectation. And um, a friend of, uh, called Mrs. Boscoen said, nobody that had children with bowels could fail to be moved by this book. And her, her friends took great delight in, in kind of sitting up in bed reading it to each other. <laughs> so it was, a, it was an extraordinary thing. What a thing to write down for yeah. your friends. Yeah. How So her perception was she'd been treated badly. Yeah, oh, always. And so Sarah was always trying to justify herself. And, and she, she wrote a book called The Conduct, which kind of explains and tries to justify her part in the breakdown of the relationship between herself and the Queen. And, you know, the relationship had been so strong that the Queen, um, when Sarah's daughters were married, offered to give them £10,000 each. And Sarah thought this was too much and accepted £5,000. Um, the, the Queen wanted to be on the same or wanted Sarah to be able to communicate with her on the same level and so she instigated this um, this ritual of having nicknames for one another so the queen was Mrs Morley John and Sarah were Mr and Mrs Freeman and that meant that even when Anne was queen Sarah could just write to her as my dear Mrs Morley and just you know, sign it off without having to go through the protocol of how you would normally address a monarch. But unfortunately, um, this became more and more difficult because what happened when, before Anne was queen, Sarah would speak to her exactly how she, she pleased. And unfortunately, in public, once Anne was queen, Sarah continued to do that. And it became more and more embarrassing for the Queen and for onlookers. And it all came to a crux when they were going to St Paul's Cathedral. And it was another Thanksgiving for one of Marlborough's victories. And the Queen wasn't wearing the jewels that Sarah had laid out for her to wear because she was mistress of the wardrobe. And um, they were having a bit of a bicker. And eventually Sarah in effect, told the Queen to shut up. And this was just one step too far. And suddenly, they found, the Marlboroughs, the Churchills, found that all their offices were stripped from them and that the Queen wouldn't even see Sarah. But what had happened in the meantime, Sarah, who liked to busy herself and, and be shown to work for her family, had found a position at court for one of her cousins, Abigail Hill, or Abigail, or Abigail Mushroom, and um, Abigail had completely supplanted Sarah in the Queen's affections. And again, if you think of the film The Favourite, that was the 
the triangle, mm. as it were. But by the point that Anne cuts ties with Sarah, she had put up with Sarah's behaviour, quite outrageous behaviour for quite a long time, hadn't she? I think despite the... Um, uh, you know, because I think Anne was the one who liked to insist that Sarah spoke to her, didn't she? At more of a par, yes, because she wanted to 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 be sort of held to account. Of that, I think that was my impression. Um, but even in the letters, she's quite. She's, she she might sort of sign off and, and and on the way that they'd agreed to, but in the middle, she's oh, no, 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 she was very forthright. Mm. You know, she and I suppose if you think about it, she was always the big girl. She's five years older, mm. and I would imagine she'd always spoken to um, like that. And and again, it's 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 quite poignant when um, we mentioned before that Queen Anne lost all these children, and then when Sarah lost her two sons, the Queen couldn't do enough for her and, you know, was was very sympathetic, whereas Sarah was, was far more abrasive. Both Anne and Sarah, though, although they are different personalities, which we've talked about, they, they both, the one thing they did seem to have in common, though, was they knew their own minds and they did stick their heels, dig their they heels did, in. They did, they did. And again, Sarah, I think, was always very angry when the Queen decided that, you know, I'm not going to do what you say or I'm, you know, I'm reluctant to, to do that. Sarah does come across like that from, from what, I've, what I have read about her, that it wasn't, she couldn't accept dissenting opin- opinions. You're absolutely, and I think this quote of Pope's is, is spot on. You know, she, she was a good hater. Should fit in nowadays, actually. <laughs> um, Sarah dies in seventeen forty-four, so she actually outlives Anne by thirty years. Now Anne being the last Stuart monarch, so then we have the Hanoverians come in. Did was was that a succession that Sarah um, supported, and how did she get on with them? As you quite rightly said, Anne died in 1714, and at this stage, John and Sarah were actually abroad. They put themselves into exile, as it were, because they were no longer welcome at court. And as soon as George I became monarch, he welcomed them back with open arms. So I would imagine that she was very pleased um, with that. And and in fact, then George II, George III... Now, George III was a particular friend of the fourth duke, so of Sarah's great-grandson. You know, so that was all absolutely fine. It was just this huge falling out with Anne um, that was never, it was never resolved. There was never a reconciliation. Um, and as I say, even, I think Anne, Sarah did actually eventually write to Anne almost a almost a begging letter but not quite and but Anne had resolved that enough was enough and um, so no once um, once the Hanoverians came it was it was good news right oh that's good because I thought with her tempestuous <laughs> personality she might have got on the wrong side of those points by but... now she was becoming quite elderly mm. you know Again, she, she was born in 1660, died in 1744, so she was in, almost in the mid-80s when she died, which nowadays is, is you know, pretty normal, but in those days it was exceptional. So, and, and she began to suffer with ill health and 
all sorts of things. Her mind was still very sharp, but she wasn't quite as physically able as she, as she once been. Mm. And she died at St. James's Palace, I think, didn't yes. she? Yeah, she did, but she's buried here. Is um, she? Yeah, she is. And, and again, next year we'll see uh, the tercentenary of the death of the first Duke. And because Blenheim wasn't ready, he was buried at Westminster Abbey. And then when Sarah died in 1744, his body was removed and they lie side by side in the, in the crypt underneath the chapel. Ah. The beautiful red leather coffins. Did she plan that for them to be moved here? Yes, I think so. I think so. Interesting, because she didn't like Blenheim. I, she... You're absolutely right. But I think the, the thing with Sarah, and, and I can't emphasise it enough, she, she finished Blenheim in her husband's memory um, and so she would have wanted to honour him I think by doing that. She definitely loved him. She did, she did and he loved her. Mm. So we've, we've mentioned um, briefly how we had the first Diana, Lady Diana Spencer uh, very early on. Yeah. Now that's not the famous one <laughs> but, they, but they are related so they are, and, and it is through Anne. So um, they, if, if you trace the line back, it come back up to John and Sarah. So um, Sarah's granddaughter, Lady Di, was the first Lady Diana. There was then um, another Lady Diana who died aged eight, and the first one died in her 20s. And again, you know, they, they have tragic lives, the Dianas. Um, the third Lady Diana was actually the, the sister of the fourth Duke of Marlborough. Um, and again, she had a very interesting and um, bumpy life. And then we eventually get to Diana, Princess of Wales. So they are distant cousins, the two families. So you've got Spencer's that all thought, Spencer Churchill's at Blenheim, um, and as I say, they're, they're cousins. I suppose it also should we should mention the other famous Churchill then while we're while we're talking, because he, Winston Churchill was born here, wasn't he? he? Was, yeah. Almost by accident? <laughs> yes, yeah. He, he was born here um, on the 30th of November, 1874. And the reason that we say it was by accident was that he was premature. Um, and he was born about six weeks earlier than he should have been. His, his parents were here for the weekend um, at a St Andrew's Day ball. And, and again, just to put it into context, um, the seventh Duke and Duchess of Marlborough were Winston Churchill's grandparents. Um, they had 11 children, five boys and six girls. Two of the boys survived. The oldest one became the eighth Duke and the younger one, Lord Randolph, was Winston Churchill's father. Um, so, as I say, Randolph and his wife Jenny were here. She went into premature labour and he was born in a, a little room, quite a modest room, you know, given that we're talking about a palace, just beside the long library. Um, so yeah, and he, Blenheim was really important to Winston Churchill. He, he spent a lot of time here um, as a child in the care of his grandparents and when he was older with his cousin the Ninth Duke, he joined the wilderness years, he did his research here and, and wrote several books. Um, and he proposed to Clementine Hosier, here, who later became his wife. Um, and he's buried just across the South Lawn in a little village called Bladen. 
So he, he's still within sight of Blenheim Palace. Very special to him then. Yeah, yeah, it was. Mm. Definitely. And you can still visit the room where he was born, I think? You can. Um, you can visit the room. And we've also, just this last year during lockdown, um, we've created a completely new Winston Churchill exhibition. So it shows you Winston um, in relation to Blenheim and, you know, takes you through his, his life. And there's even, we have a life-size wax figure so you can go and stand next to him and have a photograph taken with the great man excellent <laughs> so before we um finish up then because this has been fabulous thank you so much um there are other obviously let's let's give people some pointers as to what they might want to see when they when they come here and um some of the events that you've got going on um, <laughs> there's i mean there's, there's so much to see whether you know whether it's a family or historians or, or just people that want to look around a, a beautiful home. Um, we, coming up now towards the end of November, we'll have our light trail in, in the grounds. And again, it, it covers the, a beautiful walk around the lake and you can see all the illuminations. And the palace itself will be dressed for Christmas. And this year we have a nutcracker theme. And again, it's, it's just magical. So you know, come and see that. If that's not what interests you, then we've still got the Churchill exhibition. We've also created a new exhibition in the stables, so we've we've um, set them back to how they were, and it's just wonderful to see how well looked after the horses were and what an important role they had in the family's history. And then, you know, again, we've got beautiful lakeside walks, and we've got even bigger walks around the, the park and at the moment the colours are just glorious and it's just a wonderful place to be. Fabulous. Thank you ever so much for today. This has been fabulous. Thank you. You're very welcome. I have received such a lovely warm welcome into the home of the 12th Duke and Duchess of Marlborough here today at Blenheim Palace. I've been in, it's, this is the birthplace of Sir Winston Churchill and it really is a national treasure. Do you know, it houses some of the finest antique collections in Europe. So if you come here and take a tour of the state rooms, you are walking through 300 years of history. And it's not only an iconic building, but it's also a living and changing experience. They have a wealth of events here, themed tours and exhibitions which run throughout the year. If you want more information about the events Blenheim put on and also uh, where to get tickets, then please go online to their website, blenheimpalace.com, or you can follow them on social media under the handle at Blenheim Palace. Thank you so much for joining me for this special episode of the podcast today. I hope you have thoroughly enjoyed it. If you did, please do share it with friends, family and fellow history buffs. Spread it all over social media, wherever you think people are going to enjoy it, because it really helps put the word out and helps me continue to bring you more podcasts. Well, keep an eye on my social media, I'm at British History Tours and um, I will see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for joining and I will see you next time. Take care.